good evening to everybody. I said good evening to everybody. Thank you, thank you. It's just manners, people, manners. Just kidding. Nice to see everybody. As Bobby mentioned, if you're a guest with us tonight, it's an honor to have you here. And if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Matt, and I have the privilege of being the pastor here at The Link. And uh, my desire is that God will just meet you in a special way tonight. So uh, glad to have you, and I uh, hope that you have a wonderful, wonderful evening this, this evening. Uh, before we move on, I want to take just a minute and, uh, and let you hear from a friend of mine who we are recent recent friends, I would say. Uh, just about a week ago, got the chance to meet this guy, hang out with him earlier this, uh, th- this week, and I wanted to take an opportunity and let you hear from him for just a few minutes before we move on with the rest of the service. He, uh, he, he, is, he would call the link home. He's not been around much as of late, and there's a reason for that. I'm going to let him explain what's been going on, but I'm going to invite Chad Kahana up to the stage. Here he is. I'm gonna let, if you guys know Chad, give him a huge round of applause. And uh, I'll just ask Chad to just share a little bit about, for one, his history here at The Link, what it's meant to him. Secondly, uh, some of the things that he's, he's been a part of uh, for the past couple of years, and I'll, I'll spare you the details. I'll let him do that. And, uh, and also just some of the things that you can do to partner with him, be a part of what the next season of life looks like for him. So anyway, Chad, glad to have you, man. Go ahead. I'm going to get this out of, this way, out of the way for you. Go ahead. Thank you, Matt. You guys, um, I don't think I can really tell you how happy I am to be with you guys tonight. The Link is my home, um, and like Matt said, I haven't been here for a while, but The Link will always be my home. Um, About six years ago, I came to know the Lord, and then shortly after, I left and got involved with an organization called Youth with a Mission, and I went around the world and learned how to share the gospel, learned about evangelism. The Lord healed me and brought me to a place and showed me that this is what I want to do with the rest of my life, was missions. Um, I came back home, and the Lord decided that being involved with a missionary organization wasn't enough for me. And he wanted to get me involved with uh, the body of Christ and wanted to get me involved with a community. And that was the link. And I was here for about two years, over the course of two years, where the Lord um, gave me vision for uh, the community, and he showed me what he was doing uh, in the earth today. Um, And I want to encourage you guys that if you are a believer, you are a part of a global, eternal work of God today, right now. That's what we get to be a part of. Um, So I have been actually in Turkey for the past two years, uh, if any of you guys have, like, a map in the back of your Bible, if you look at it right now, Turkey is going to be, like, right in the middle of it. Turkey was the birthplace of the church that we are part of today. The seven churches of Revelation are in Turkey. Half of the churches that the epistles are written to are all in Turkey. But today, it is 98% Muslim and less than 1% Christian. Um, and that's where I get to live today. It's the largest unreached nation in the world. It is a beautiful, beautiful place, Um, and there are believers there. There are a few missionary workers there, like myself. Um, I've spent the past two years investing in language and culture so that I can spend at least the next five years involved in church planting in Turkey. And what does church planting look like? If you don't know the language, you have to learn the language first before you can be able to communicate anything with anybody. Has anybody in here ever learned a second language? A few people. I have 
a lot of respect for all of you. It is a very, very hard thing, but it is a huge investment. It's the most important investment for sharing the gospel in a different country. Um, I want to share one verse with you guys. From Hebrews 12, it's right after Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. If you guys have ever read that, it's a really encouraging um, part of scripture. It talks about all these amazing people. The Bible is a story of God using broken people, foolish people, to do amazing things. And Hebrews 11 talks about all these amazing or all these amazing things they did to all these broken people. And it says, And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has promised something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When you guys learn about Moses, when you learn about Joshua, when you learn about all these people, these people are all the cloud of witnesses that I talked about there. They're all waiting. They're looking to us. And I think it's Mike Pickle who talks about how we're always talking about when we get to heaven, we're going to like run to those people who were with Jesus and be like, what was it like to be working with Jesus on the earth? Like, just tell me what is it like. But they're going to be the ones running to us as well and be like, what was it like to be there in the time of his return? What was it like to be there? That's what I want to encourage you guys with. Um, the link has been an amazing part. I want to encourage you to, to dig deep. It's, ju- it's, it's just like a slingshot, getting involved in community, getting involved with the, with the body of Christ. Whatever you are wanting to do, dig deep here. And the Lord is going to propel you into your destiny. If there's anybody here tonight who already is like wanting to get involved in foreign missions, maybe even among the unreached, I want to pray for you guys. If you want to get involved with missions, I want to pray for you guys. If you just want me to pray for you, I'd also love to pray with you. So after service, I'll hang out here a little bit. I'll also be at Shave the Planet and stuff. But thank you guys for having me. Thank you again, Matt. It's awesome to be with you guys. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Hey, and guys, if you, uh, if you want to be a little more in tune as to how you can partner with him, some of the things that you can do, even just financially helping out, um, because let's face it, as Bobby said, money, money is necessary for a lot of these things to take place. I encourage you, please, please, please go talk with Chad and, um, and see what you can do. There's also potential that, uh, that there's a trip to Turkey on the line as well. So if you're interested in any way, uh, any way shape, or form, Talk with him and see how you can partner with him because there's some really, really amazing things going on. And it's really cool just to, to have the realization that we are a part of a much larger, uh, a much larger deal uh, as far as the kingdom of God goes. We are here in northwest Arkansas, but there's so much going on all across the globe, and uh, it's just very, very cool. Well, tonight I want to continue in, uh, in our series in Galatians. We've been walking through this throughout the summer, and uh, we've seen some pretty cool things as far as what the scripture has to say. Uh, we've discovered that the Galatians is a, is a book, actually it's a letter, uh, that is written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, to the Christians there. And he is bringing correction, he's bringing clarity to the entire issue of the gospel and the message of the gospel. There's been some false teachers come in trying to, uh, trying to entice some of these new Galatian converts, these new Christian converts, uh, into a form of legalism. 
and essentially trying to say, hey, in order to be accepted by God, yes, you must accept Jesus, and yes, we acknowledge that he is who he is, but you must also continue observing some of these rituals, some of these laws, some of these things, and it's really just a form of legalism, and that's masquerading around a little bit differently. So Paul's bringing clarity, he's bringing correction, and in his language, he uses some strong language, like very, very oppressing language, very urgent, and he's He's very serious about what he's saying because he's saying, look, if you revise the gospel at all, then it's no gospel at all. So he's, he's, he's very deliberate with what he's saying. So he's continuing here, and we're going to pick up, if you want to turn to, uh, to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 8, Galatians 4, 8, and we're going to go through verse 20. But he's continuing uh, in, in, his, in his writing to them, and it looks to me as if, yes, he's been agitated with them. Yes, he's been very concerned but his agitation is certainly not diminishing. It's not going anywhere. And it's almost as if the longer he writes, the longer this letter gets, the more concerned he becomes, the more adamant he becomes. And he's very clear with what he's trying to, uh, with what he's trying to, to communicate here. In the verses that we're going to read, um, Paul is basically drawing a, a pretty distinct contrast between two different worlds. And really, he's drawing a line between two different religions. Um, you know, prior to the conversion, these Galatian Christians were worshiping idols. They were worshiping in, in, in temples that, that, uh, that allowed for this. And, and they were just living immoral lifestyles, essentially. And, and so Paul's talking about that a little bit. But these guys, were, these guys were just out in left field. I mean, not even close to Scripture, not even close to the gospel. So they've had a great conversion take place. But what Paul is doing is, is a little bit interesting, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But let's start in, in verse uh, number 8 and go through chapter, excuse me, verse 20. It says, Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. And now that you have found God, or should I say now that God has found you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless powers of this world? You're trying to find favor with God by what you do or don't do on certain days, or months, or seasons, or years. I fear for you, and I am afraid that all my hard work for you was worth nothing. Let me pause here. Have you ever really invested in somebody's life? Like, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy, maybe a lot of prayer, maybe a lot of money. And then somewhere down the road, they just have seemingly squandered the whole thing. And you're going, I... Hello, we've talked about this. Don't you, like, I, I've, I've slaved over this for you. And then you are, you're nowhere even close to what we, what, we've, what we talked about. That's kind of what Paul's feeling here. He's feeling like his labor has been in vain. And as he says, worth nothing. So in verse 12, he continues, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles were, free from the law. Again, he uses the past tense. I've become like you were, free from the law. He says, you did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news of Christ. But even though my sickness was revolting to you, you did not reject me and turn me away. I wonder what that means. Like, is he vomiting all over everyone? I don't know. He says, my, my sickness was revolting to you. He says, no, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful spirit we felt together then? In those days, I know you would gladly have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Those false teachers who are so anxious to win your favor 
are not doing it for your good. They're trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay more attention to them. Now, it's wonderful if you are eager to do good, especially if, when I'm not with you. But, oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. That's a key phrase there. I will continue in this until Christ is fully developed. Do you realize and, and do you see here that Paul is saying, I have taken on a responsibility and I will continue to carry through with that responsibility for you. I will continue in this endeavor, as painful as it is, and he, he equates it to a labor. He goes, I will stay faithful to this until Christ is fully developed in you. We have that responsibility as well. Until Christ is fully developed. Verse 20 says, how I wish you were there, how I wish I were there with you right now, so that I could be more gentle with you. But at this distance, I frankly don't know what else to do. So again, Paul has essentially re reached his wit's end. He is... Uh, He's, he's growing in his concern for the situation because, again, we're talking about the authenticity of the gospel, and any revision is none at all. So there's a lot at stake. Um, before we move on, let me pray and just ask the Lord to have his way and, uh, and speak to us as, as really only he can. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for bringing us here together. We thank you for the liberties that we have God, as we celebrate 4th of July here in a few days, we thank you right now for the liberties that we have to come into this place without any uh, reservation, without any, uh, without any pushback from, from, from our governments or anything like that. God, we have freedom, and we thank you for that. And so, Lord, I ask that you would reveal even more so the freedom that we have in you, the experience that we have in you as living uh, this, this Christian life. I ask that we would see Jesus more clearly, God, that you would highlight scripture to us and that you would speak to each individual as only you can and make yourself known to us. Help us to see ourselves through your eyes and God, help us to walk out of this place different people. We love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen, amen. So at the onset of this uh, particular passage, it looks as if Paul is warning these guys, clearly he's warning them, but it looks as if he's warning them not to return to this old lifestyle they had. Again, they were worshiping so-called gods, worshiping idols in these temples. It was just a very paganism type of mentality, and, and it looks as if he's saying, I don't want you to go back to that. But if you look at the scripture, if you look at the context of this passage, if you look at the context of just the entire book, what you realize is that that's not really what he's saying at all. Again, the entire book, the entire letter to the Galatians is about the gospel. It's about the integrity of the gospel. It's about the authenticity of its message. And so what he's saying here is instead of fearing for them possibly returning to this immoral lifestyle, returning to pagan worship, idolatry, those types of things, he's saying, I fear that you are adopting a form of legalism. That's essentially what he's saying. He goes, I fear that you're walking into a, a version of of the gospel that, that appears like it's necessary, it appears accurate, but it's off. It's really, really off. He goes, I don't want you adopting this legalism, this teaching from these false teachers. You don't have to adhere to this old Mosaic law anymore. Again, these guys were pressing the Old Testament law on these guys again and saying, in order to be pleasing to God, you've got to be, yes, saved through Jesus, but also you have to maintain all of these other rituals, you have to keep all these dietary laws in place, circumcision, all these different things. 
that are not necessary because the fact is, is that Jesus was the fulfillment of those things. And so what those things end up becoming are idols. He goes, I fear that you're stepping into a form of legalism that is all the more dangerous as what you were living in. Because if it's separate from Jesus, if there's anything between you and Jesus, then it all falls into the same category. So his urgency is not due to the Galatians returning to their old lifestyle. Instead, he's saying, you trying to earn your salvation through some sort of meticulous allegiance to a religion, even if it is Bible-based, is not what's going to work for you. It's no better than worshiping idols and in living in moral lifestyles. It's an interesting thought. It's an interesting point he's driving home. And you may ask the question, you go, okay, now, these two lifestyles, these two religions seem completely different. I mean, one, yes, yeah, you know, maybe they're, they're, they're doing some things, rules and regulations, types of things that maybe are not necessary. Uh, but, you know, for them to be sacrificing to idols and to all these crazy gods that really don't even exist, how are those even the same? Well, they, they do two things. Both of them do th- two things. Both lead to being enslaved. Both lead to being enslaved. And both result in us trying to be our own Savior and our own Lord. Both lead to being enslaved. Both result in us trying to be our own Savior and our own Lord. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. You see, the reality is that many of us are saved by grace, but then we live by works. We are saved by grace, and then we live by works. Tonight, I've just entitled the message, Spiritual Schizophrenia. Spiritual Schizophrenia. Now, in no way, shape, or form am I trying to make light of any of any mental illness. I know those are real illnesses, and I know that real people suffer from those. So I'm not trying to draw a humorous comparison here. What I want to do is give you a definition of schizophrenia that will be more so for general use, more so applicable to what we're talking about tonight. So here it is. Schizophrenia defined. It's a mentality or an approach characterized by inconsistent or contradictory elements. I'll say it again. A mentality or approach characterized by inconsistent or contradictory elements. So in light of the gospel, living by works or trying to save yourself, in other words, it can cause us to have this confused and often, if you will, a crazy Christian experience. It's contradictory. They don't mesh. And so we have this schizophrenic walk with with the Lord. So let's dive into this a little bit. Living a schizophrenic Christian life does a couple of things, and there's so many different directions we could have gone with this tonight, but I wanted to highlight just a couple of things that stood out to me. Living a schizophrenic Christian life, for one, it creates idols. It creates idols. In verse 9, Paul asks this all-important question. He says, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual powers of this world? You see, in that culture, like I mentioned, Galatians, the Galatians would worship idols. They'd worship in these temples. But they would worship these gods that were believed to have some sort of a power, some sort of a control over their destinies. And so in order to do this, there were certain sacrifices that had to be made to these gods. And that was what appeased them. That's what was uh, an idea of worship to them. And each god had its own certain requirements. Um, <clears throat> so if you're a farmer... You're sacrificing to some sort of a weather god because you're concerned about your crops, you're needing rain, or whatever it may be. 
you know, but if you're traveling by boat, you know, heading on some sort of a cruise, then Poseidon is the guy to talk to. And then there are, there are you know, fertility gods, there are sun gods, and, and, and various things. What's interesting to note that I just came across a, a couple of days ago is that if you look at Greek mythology, because again, that's a lot where a lot of this was based, there are 12 key gods within that. And if you also look and compare that or really contrast that with Christianity, then you see Christ had 12 apostles. And what that is, the number 12 is the number of divine government. And so what we see here, even within Greek mythology, is that Satan is trying to counterfeit truth. He's going to come up with some close replicas. It's going to look pretty similar, but it's always counterfeit. I just thought that was an interesting note. So there are all kinds of gods that these guys are, are essentially sacrificing to. So in other writings, when he's talking to the Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that we have no other gods. There's one. There's one real God. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, he's again talking to Christians in Corinth, and he says, we all know that an idol is not really a god and that there is only one God and no other. A couple, a couple of chapters later, he continues in chapter 10, verse 19 and 20, he says, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that the idols to whom the pagans bring sacrifices are real gods and that these sacrifices are of some value? No, not at all. What I'm saying is that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want any of you to be partners with demons. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a frightening statement. Because, again, he's, he's talking to Christians. Paul is writing to the Corinthians in the church at Corinth. And he's saying, I don't want you getting mixed up with any of this and offering sacrifices, even if it is without knowledge of it, to these false gods. Because the reality is, is that these are just not these aren't just false gods. There are demonic powers behind it. And essentially what you're doing is you're partnering with demons. That's kind of a scary thought. Even if you're unaware of it. Paul's warning them. So again, if these are Christians and Paul's talking to Christians, then who's to say that we're not susceptible to this as well? Have you ever noticed that America has this slight tendency to want to idolize we have American Idol, okay? It's just, it's right there. I mean, that's an easy one, okay? <laughs> but there are movies, movie, movie stars. We have musicians. Uh, we have even those in the fashion industry. No offense, Caleb. Um, sorry, it's a low blow. But it's everywhere. We have this tendency to idolize. Even if you think about the gym, like working out at the gym, you could have this really wonderful New Year's resolution to say, hey, I want to burn some calories. Uh, Tanner Erickson and I, we have, we have discussed this and, and, and come to the conclusion that, you know, this little area right here around your waistline, we have called it the belt of truth. And uh, since we have trouble getting rid of it, we just decided to name it something that is uh, something that God encourages to put on the belt of truth. So we're constantly wearing the belt of truth. <laughs> But even, even within, with, within the gym, you can see where your, 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 your motives could shift. And this becomes less about getting in shape and, and having a healthy body of with, with, within which the, the Holy Spirit lives. And instead, it becomes about you and looking a certain way and idolizing yourself. It's interesting. An idol is someone or something that occupies the place of God in your life. An idol is someone or something that occupies the place of God in your life. In our idols, we're looking for things. We're looking for things. 
We're searching out for identity, value, meaning, love, security, significance. We're looking for these things within these idols. I mean, think about even some of the some of the movies that have come out. How many? I don't know. Are there Twilight fans here? Any Twilight fans? Okay, just a couple. All right. Oh, we'll pray for you. Just kidding. Even within, like, people want to be identified with a particular group. So, I mean, people are, are, are saying, hey, I'm a Twilight fanatic. And so you've watched all the movies, and you're, I don't know if they're all are, they're finished yet. I'm, I'm just not in that zone. I'm sorry. But we, even within that, there are even smaller, like, subgroups, which is like, what, is it Team Jacob and Team Edward and those types of things? Like, it's like we're wanting to be identified. It's like, who are you? I'm Team Edward. Oh, we're going to fight then. You know, it's... We're looking for identity. We want to be identified because we feel safe within a community like that. We feel like we belong. We feel like we have value. We feel significant. I know that's a humorous take on things, but we do that in all kinds of capacities. We're looking for these things within our idols. The reality is is that we are created to worship. We are created to worship. Like we We don't even have a choice in whether or not we will worship. We're going to find something to worship if we don't worship God. I don't truthfully, I don't necessarily believe that there is a true agnostic or a true atheist because, again, you may not believe in a divine God, a divine being. You may not believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and that he is God, but you will worship something. You will find a God, little g, and you will worship it. It's reality. We are created to worship. The question is, though, is who or what will we worship? You remember the reaction after Michael Jackson's death? It's been a little while now, but again, and I'm not trying to devalue anybody's life. He was an incredible musician and entertainer and all sorts of things. But do you remember some of the reactions? Like, and this was posted on national television. People went into, like, deep depressions after this. People who never met the man. Never had a conversation with him. Are, are, are tumbling into these deep depressions after this guy passed away. Now, again, I want to value people's lives, so I'm not trying to, to undo that. But there was no personal relationship with Michael Jackson. When you grieve somebody who's been a lost loved one, somebody who's died prematurely, whatever it may be, there is, yes, a season of grief. And those are healthy things. But when there's no relationship in place and you're, 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 heading, you're going headlong into a depression because of, of a particular pop star that's died, to me that causes some, some red flags to go up. And I wonder who that person really was to you. Because, again, there was no personal relationship. But we're going to find a God to worship. We will find a God to worship. Those whom we idolize cannot maintain the standards we set for them. Ultimately, they're going to disappoint us because they aren't God. In addition to that, they were not created to be worshipped. We do this not only just in you know, Hollywood and, and, and with, with celebrities, but we do this even within the church. We, we, we put people up on a pedestal. And we, we, we put them up around standards that no human being can keep. It's impossible. 
And invariably, they do let us down. It is reality. They will fail us. That's why you have to be careful with, even again, within great Christian leaders, that we don't put people upon a pedestal that they cannot attain. It's dangerous not only for you, but it's also for them. Because the reality is, is that whoever or whatever we idolize, we will eventually demonize. Whoever or whatever we idolize, we will eventually demonize. What do I mean by that? I mean that once that person, once that idol, once that thing fails you, you'll condemn it. You'll condemn it. You'll, 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 you'll look at it as a threatening uh, source, as a threatening person, and it will become once this, this infallible, perfect thing or person to suddenly this worthless thing that we to trash talk about. It's happened. It's happened. People cannot maintain these standards. They were not created to be worshipped. Even look at Satan. Look at Lucifer. He was once in heaven, once the worship leader, once absolutely stunning in his appearance. And he gets the idea that he deserves worship. And what we see happen is that there's a huge war in heaven, and then a third of angels rebel, follow Satan, and they're kicked out. And now he's our enemy. Only God is worthy of worship. Only he is the one who can maintain the standard that we set, and really the standard that he set. But we will find something or somebody to worship. I mean, even think about the Kardashians. They're easy to pick on. But, you know, you may be a fanatic of the Kardashians. You're just keeping up with the Kardashians. i got to watch the Kardashians. What are the Kardashians doing? Da, 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 da. And then we see Kim get married, and she's married for like eight days. And then we start talking bad about her. It's like, oh, she can't even keep her marriage together. Oh, she, how much money did she get from this guy? You know what I'm saying? Like, we tune in to watch their show, and we can't miss it. But then when they do something stupid, we go, oh, what an idiot. Whatever we idolize, we will demonize. People were not created to be worshipped. Again, even within the church, there are countless ways in which we can do this. We can, turn, we can turn to these things in order to really earn our salvation. They become idols to us. As Christians, we can get really, really good at church. And even within the church walls, we have idols that manifest. And I know this is, like I looked at this and I said, you know, Lord, this is not really going to be one of those, those feel-good messages. And he's like, uh, it's in the Bible. Talk about it. Even within the church walls, we see this take place. Serving, church attendance, ministry to others, even Bible reading, those things can become idols. And you go, well, how, how can that be? Because we put those up as the reason in which we are accepted by God. They become the bridge to God instead of Christ as the bridge. We say that because I do these things, I am now saved, or I am staying saved, because I'm here every single week. I'm serving every single week. I have spent bukus of hours in the Word. I've memorized countless scriptures. Da, 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 da. And what we end up doing is we put those things in place of God, and we say, I am doing this, which is making me saved, which is why I am who I am. That adds value to me. But the truth is, is that we're saved by grace through faith. That is our salvation in Jesus Christ. And that these things are only in addition to 
They are supplements to our salvation. They do not save us. They become idols when we allow them to replace God in our lives. It's easy to do. It's easy to do. We feel like we have to have some sort of level of spiritual achievement. It's like, I remember like in kindergarten, I guess it was, you know, if you, if you behaved or if you, you know, did really well on a spelling test or whatever it may be, you got maybe a free recess, I don't know, but you got these little stars next to your name. And then, you know, they would hang it up on the wall. And so the entire class could see that you've got more stars, you've got less stars, and it was this whole competition. But through that, though, we see that, okay, if I have more stars, then I'm more valuable. If I have more stars, then I'm better. If I, I'm a better student, whatever it may be. And God is saying, everybody's sinned. Everybody's fallen short. You're all in need of me fully. We have to be careful, even within the church, that we don't allow these good things to be what Paul talked about, which is to become a legalistic religion. Because either way, We've lost sight of the gospel. Let me move on. Paul's point is this. These things become false saviors when we rely on them for God's acceptance. And so even though these pagan gods don't exist, the ones that he's describing to the Galatians, even though they don't exist, we can become enslaved to them because there is evil behind them. It's not just this Buddha statue or it's not just this graven image, or whatever it may be, there are spiritual forces behind it. And he's saying, I don't want you getting mixed up in that. Because if you do, that's a dangerous road. So my urgency, my pleading with you, is for good reason. It's a big deal. So for one, the schizophrenic Christian lifestyle creates idols. Secondly, it creates insecurity. It creates insecurity. The reason we accept idols in the first place is due to our insecurity regarding our acceptance with God. Let me say it again. The reason we create idols in the first place is due to our insecurity regarding our acceptance with God. In verse 9, Paul reminds the Galatians, he says that they have found God. But then it's as if he catches himself and he goes, rather, you are known by God or you are found by God. He's indicating that we have a personal connection. We have a knowing by God. This is a big deal. He says in 1 Corinthians 8.3, he says, but the person who loves God is the one God knows and cares for. So since we're known by God, since we're loved by God, why is it that we don't live securely in his love? Why isn't? Since we are in his love, we are known by him, we don't live that way. Richard Lovelace has an interesting has an interesting uh, a statement that I want to read to you. He's just a brilliant mind in the, in the Christian uh, realm. And he says this, Christians who are no longer sure that God loves and accepts them in Jesus, apart from their, their present spiritual achievements, are subconsciously, radically insecure persons. Ouch. Much less secure than non-Christians because of the constant bulletins they receive from their Christian environment about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their righteousness, uh, their insecurity, excuse me, shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness, and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to the legal, pharisaical righteousness. And let me stop there. He's talking about Pharisees. Think back to when Jesus was on this planet and look at the Gospels. Who were the people that he had the most conflict with? Pharisees. 
It wasn't the sinners. It wasn't the people who were just blatantly messing up. It was the people who knew Scripture inside and out, but did not know God. Their Scripture, their uh, allegiance, their rule-keeping, and Paul talks about this earlier in Galatians, that and those things became their God. And that's who Jesus had conflict with. So he's saying they cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness or legalism, but envy and jealousy and other sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. That's, that's an ouch statement. It just hurts a little bit. If you see yourself in that print anywhere, that's a big statement. If you look at Moses' life and you look at the instance where he's in the, he's in the wilderness, he's on the backside of the desert, he's keeping sheep, God appears to him in this burning bush, which is a miracle in itself because it was not consumed. Any firework that you, you, you shoot off this, this, this week, it's, it's, it's going to be consumed unless it's just, you know, a dud. But this is a miracle because it's not being consumed. So this gets his attention and then he has two more miracles take place. God is saying, Moses, you're the one to do this. You're the one to lead these people. I have chosen you. It's going to happen through you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to take care of it. You're just the vessel. You're the mouthpiece that I'm going to use to do this. And Moses freaks out. Moses is, is incredibly insecure here. And I want you to see comfort in this. I certainly do. Because God's got a huge task ahead. And Moses is going, I'm not the guy for this. Why can't my brother do it? Why can't, can't you just find somebody else? And God's going, no, Moses, it's you. The reality is, is that he was so focused on his insecurities and so focused on his limitations that he didn't see God for who he was. Moses was standing in the way of Moses. And that's where many of us are often. We are so insecure, though we are known by a loving and secure God. But we have allowed this insecurity to form idols and that's a, that's a dangerous place to be. We're given this promise of comfort in 1 Corinthians 1.30. And again, Paul is, is addressing this here. And he says, God alone made it possible for you to be in Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made Christ to be wisdom itself. He is the one who made us acceptable to God. And he made us pure and holy. And he gave himself to purchase our freedom. You see, insecurity is born when we put the focus on our knowing him. When we focus on our knowing him, which fluctuates based on how we feel, what emotion that we have going on that day, instead of putting the focus on him knowing us in Christ. It's a big difference there. It's a big difference. Just closing tonight, I want to look at verses 12 and I want to look at verse 19. And I want to take these, even though there are five or six, seven verses in between them, I want to take them and I want to sandwich them together and read them to you. Verse 12 says this, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles were, free from the law. Verse 19, but oh my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. You see, Paul's desire for the Galatians, which is the solution to any idolatry that we have going on, any insecurity that we have going on, is that Christ be fully formed, fully developed in their lives or in our lives. That is the solution. So you say, well, how does that happen? How is Christ fully developed in us? What does that look like? See, Jesus will shape our lives if we rely on him to do so. If we abandon our lives to him, letting him have access to it, then he will do it. You, you almost have to picture yourself as if you're clay. 
in the hands of God. And, and, and scripture talks and gives the metaphor of, of we're the clay and he's the potter and we're just, if you allow yourself to be formed in the hands of God and allow him to shape you the way he needs to, as you need to, then you will begin to see that Christ is being formed in you. You will begin to look more like him. Your life will begin to look more like him. Your actions, your thoughts, your attitudes, your conversations will look more like Jesus. But faith is the currency that helps this take place. Christ has developed in us through our faith in him and in his work in us. Faith is, is what help, helps make that exchange possible. Faith is what puts you as that clay in his hands. It's what places you there. And it's also what keeps you there. Because it's not going to be comfortable, it's not going to be convenient often, but it's what is necessary for Christ to be fully developed in you. That's what Paul's saying. Because my concern is so much that even though this is painful for me, as, as a father figure to do, I'm going to continue in this until, until, this is developed. Timothy Keller makes this statement. He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. I love that. We are known by God and we are clothed in Christ. And so there's no longer this need to be playing dress up for God. He knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what we're facing. He knows every insecurity that you are experiencing now, every insecurity that you have experienced previous. He knows every single idol that is floating around in your life that is keeping you from him. And yet he still loves you unconditionally. That's awesome. That's awesome. And like Paul said, God is faithful to complete what he's started in us. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Basically, until the day that we are out of here. God will continue to walk with you side by side, to be faithful in your life. And we have to put our faith in him to allow him to do what only he can do. Does that make sense? That's where we are. That's where we are. Let me pray for you tonight. Father, we, we thank you for your word because your word is truth. And it just lays it out in plain words as it is. And we thank you, God, that we can hold our lives up next to your word and we can have an honest depiction of who we are and where we are. Lord, I pray that as people are just sitting there in their seats, that they would begin looking throughout their lives, doing a, a, an introspection of, of who they are and where they are, and that they begin identifying, that you would begin identifying through your Holy Spirit, anything that is prohibiting us from fully engaging in this life with you, anything that is standing between you and us. Because the reality is, is that want to be the Lord of our lives, not just the Savior. You don't want to just remove sin. You want to give us a full freedom in this. Satan's not even concerned with, with who's sitting on the throne of our lives as long as it's not you. He'll let us be there. So God, I pray that you would highlight to us, God, anything that is standing in 
the way. And God, that we would worship you with everything that we have. There would be no hindrance.